On this episode of the Workplace Warrior Podcast, I speak with the well-renowned Dr. Nicole LaPera, also known as a holistic psychologist. From her first-hand experiences of self-healing, she knew that a holistic approach was the way to go. In today's conversation, we cover things from the subconscious to the gut, all the way to regulating emotions in the modern-day workplace. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the Workplace Warrior Podcast, where we have people from around the world share with you their journey to expand human consciousness and bring evolution to our modern day workplace, where the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. With every warrior's journey, there's always a beginning to their story. Nicole, can you share with us where your workplace warrior journey first began? Absolutely, Lee. I sure can. So I have two parallel journeys in terms of in my professional world and then in my personal world that, um, you know, kind of overlapped, I think, in a lot of senses, bringing me on the professional evolution that I am now on. So on a, on a personal side of things, I'm a human who has struggled with anxiety in particular for as long as I can remember. I was that little girl, really fearful of pretty much everything in life, hiding under tables, a lot of anxiety. I developed a lot of obsessive thinking and then my own brand of compulsions or tics that I would do to try to navigate that thinking as far back as I can remember. That was just my story. Probably when I entered into my 20s, by now, obviously, I think many of us have been asked, what are you going to do when you grow up? And Mm -hmm. my response, as long as I can remember, was I wanted to be a psychologist. Mainly now that I understand, I think, my story and myself in a deeper sense, as looking back, I was always so incredibly fascinated with the mind, with what makes minds different. Like, why why do I think and do the things that I think and do? Obviously, when you're younger, it's why do my friends think and do differently than I do? Uh, so I, I always had this, this interest in the mind. So once you become what of high school age and people are like, what are you going to do when you get older? That's what you would have heard. That's what you have heard me saying. I'm going to be a psychologist. Sure. Yeah. And I wanted to, to have my own practice. So flash forward to a whole hell of a lot of training where I went down the traditional path. Uh, I got a PhD in clinical psychology so that I could be equipped and licensed to open up, to hang the shingle, if it were. Meanwhile, on the professional side of things, Lee, I still, anxiety was my backdrop. I would go through periods of time, my 20s really kind of acutely being one of those periods where my anxiety would be at an all-time high. I was introduced to the beautiful world of panic attacks, almost took myself to the hospital on several occasions. And again, nothing seemed quite out of the ordinary with these experiences because Mm. as I looked around, they were very common in a lot of ways. A lot of my friends, I was in the business of anxiety and of panic. So you know, with my two options at that point, or what I thought my two options were, medication and therapy, I pursued both. I was in treatment myself. I was medicated myself for for years trying to stabilize my anxiety, but it was always there. Anyway, so flash forward in time, 
after my training ends, I get the license that allows me to hang the shingle. I marry along in my practice. I was, I was very grateful that I was able to have a quite successful private practice quite quickly. And I began to log hours upon hours with my clients at the time weekly. They would come in and talk similarly. Many had anxiety. Many were on medication as well. And I was just marrying along until I started to have really scary physical symptoms. Now, out of nowhere, I started to, or seemingly out of nowhere, I started to faint. Uh, I never fainted before. I don't know anyone oh, wow. out there listening who has fainted. It's quite scary, um, especially if one of your versions of anxiety, as it is for my life, is health-based. So, of course, I see fainting as, oh, this is definitely a sign that something <laughs> is really problematic, right? Yeah. And then that was coupled with, I would start to forget names of people that I was talking to, clients that I had had for years. I forgot my sentence, mid-sentence. And it was one of those forgettings where I often forget my sentence, but I can find my way back to some topic and maybe land upon what I meant to say, right? This time or these moments of that forgetting, it almost felt like my, my brain became a vacuum and I couldn't even think of a thought uh, to offer next. So of course, all of these symptoms together, I did what many of us do, which is I dove online trying to diagnose what I was convinced at this point was a brain. I was like, okay, all of these symptoms are seeming really cognitive. There might, like, there must be something going on in my brain at this point. Again, anxiety was always part of my story, but nothing really different. It was pretty high because I was fearful of what was wrong with me. Anyway, long story short, when I was seeking so desperately to figure out what the heck was wrong with me, I, my, uh, my mind was blownly. I discovered this whole vast areas of research on the human body in particular on this new science. I had never heard this word before. It's called epigenetics, mm. which really just highlights that as, as I had believed, as many of us had believed for so long, I, I was under the, the thought that, okay, things are genetic, you know, and you either have the chip or you don't. So I, I knew all of my genetic chips by that point and thought I, like I said earlier, was just saddled up to live, you know, the expression of those things that I was destined to have. And now here I'm hearing, oh, wait a minute, there's this new science that is saying, yeah, we all are genetically predetermined. We do have, you know, chips in us that we're born with, but lifestyle and environment actually play a far greater role in whether or not we get that thing or we don't get that thing. And then I discovered the human body and the, the gut and the importance of gut health and physiological imbalances and our nervous system. Again, this was nothing that I had heard about in school. So after many an hour of research, I came up with a protocol, honestly, for myself. I changed my life pretty much from top to bottom, the way I was living, my lifestyle habits, uh, my sleep habits, my nutrition habits. I built in some new practices of breath work and consciousness and my life actually changed. Within months, not only was my physical symptoms gone, Lee, my anxiety was going away, which was the most notable piece of the journey for me. And then at that time, I felt like I had discovered something really important. I had identified a way that as, I, as far as I see it, the field, the mental wellness field is lacking, keeping this idea that the mind and the body are separate. I was coming to realize they are mm -hmm. not separate. There is such connection here. Um, and I made the decision to go online at that point. That's when I created the account, The Holistic Psychologist, mainly for me as an avenue to begin to speak what I was coming to, to know was my new truth. Because meanwhile, 
in my actual workplace, I was still doing the old model. I was showing up week after week. I was, you know, doing the talk therapy supportive approach that I was trained to do. But meanwhile, I had all of these other tools and methods. And, and the scientist in me, I always joke when I say this, wanted to expand the the end, the sample, because I knew that those methods worked for me. Uh, I knew that they worked for my partner who was also healing in a very similar way, but I didn't know how far beyond that that would extend. So I started to share them. And then within months, people who I didn't even know were u- listening to my story, were using these new tools would start to message me at that point from around the world, which was mind blowing to me, telling me of similar positive changes that they, that they were seeing in their life. And at that point I had a good heart, honest talk with myself in terms of my professional journey. And this is where I took the really big pivot and made the decision that I would need to, in order to live in alignment, work embracing these holistic methods. Wow. Yeah, you uh, you hear a lot of people talking about these things now, and it's like you know we've seen all these other cultures for thousands and thousands of years practice these things, but you know, kind of us in our Western society, right? We're kind of late to the game at times, and uh, you know, there's proof time and time again that, like you said, like meditation, breath work, just mindfulness, knowing what you're putting into your body, just taking that pause and being able to assess, like, okay, like what's kind of coming next? What am I actually going to like consciously do? to better my health or to continue the way I live. So when did it kind of kick in for you after you started practicing these things? Was it obviously it wasn't, you know, one of those moments that was a flip of a switch, but when did you start to see like, okay, like what I'm doing now is making a huge change in my life? Yeah, absolutely. And to speak to your point, and then a point I'm always beating into the ground, and I think to a lot of people's dismay is that it's not quick at all. Like, this mm-hmm. happened yep. in in waves. You know, my my healing happened in waves. Um, for me, I talk about mental resistance a lot, which is really just our human aversion to change. We like things to be the familiar. And if I look back at the different, at the many changes I made, for me which is interesting because I do have a lot of negative behaviors around food. My nutritional changes were the easiest. And I think part of it was I had, I have a partner with whom I live and she is very, very good with change and very adaptable. Mm-hmm. It's funny. We were talking about that this morning, how, how slow I call myself a turtle with change. And she could just wake up tomorrow in a different city and be like, all right, so it's Tuesday in you know, wow. Panama, like here I am, you know? So she helps me and helped me nutritionally. But if I look back, that was one of the easier changes, meaning I made it pretty quickly and I stuck to it. So the first, I think, positive uh, movement I saw was within my body. My body, those physiological imbalances started to level out. Uh, The brain fog that I was living for my whole life at this point, I thought that was normal. I thought it was, by this point, I was well into my 30s. So I, at this point, everywhere I talked about lay was feeling the same. I have no energy. I can't think straight. I have no attention. So I thought that was, oh, my life in my 30s. But those, I think, were the first indicators when my cognition cleared up a little bit, when my sleep got a little bit better, when I had some energy actually come back. I'm not you know, realizing that us humans, a lot of us live from coffee cup to coffee cup to get through the day. I was that human. Um, because a lot of our adrenal glands are so shot that we are not physiologically balanced. So we need that stimulant. So when I started to get my energy back, that's when I, I first saw the inklings of, oh, okay, 
this change is, is happening. My anxiety for sure did not, was not one of the first changes that went away because while I will attest, especially looking back that had I not made those body-based, those foundational lifestyle changes, I don't believe I would have been able to fully heal. I think that that's the foundation that we all need to make sure that our body is as physiologically balanced as possible. I don't think I would have gotten to the place of healing my anxiety, but there were still a lot of other daily habits or practices I had to get good and consistent with before my anxiety then went away, such as consciousness building through a meditation practice and daily consciousness and breath work being an incredibly impactful tool. And if I'm honest, those changes, I was that turtle. I, I, I resisted becoming consistent in those habits uh, because in a lot of ways they were, they were uncomfortable. So it happened in waves. But like I said, for me, it was the nutritional and lifestyle changes were the most approachable in the beginning and the most maintainable for me, which led to my body started to feel a bit better. And then I was able to develop some consistency in other habit areas that fully healed my anxiety. And then beyond that, I was able to uncondition myself. You'll hear me talk a lot about the power of the subconscious mind being a large reason why many of us are stuck. So it happened definitely in layers, my change. So yeah, I know you were talking a lot about, you know, ingraining those habits, like you just mentioned, and really just kind of layering those things on there. But as you mentioned earlier, you know, there's a lot with epigenetics and quantum physics and all this new research, right? And it's really interesting to me because if somebody, as somebody with a mental health diagnosis at a really young age, um, and and everybody telling me, oh, it's physiological, you'll be on SSRIs for the rest of your life. And then coming to present moment, having never had to take any of those medications and now basically doing like a retransformation of my brain. And then as you can attest to, too, doing your own transformation, it really intrigues me to find out like, hey, is this, you know, when it comes to mental health and mental wellness, is it really physiological locked in kind of like you mentioned earlier? Or can we really change these things? Can you touch on a little bit more of that as well? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. I mean, a lot for I think a lot of us, like I was sharing earlier, like similar to you, I mean, while I did not get an official diagnosis as early as you did, I think for me, it's because my compulsions and the way I was navigating it and also my family structure. And I'm going to get to that in a second, but it, I was able to fly more under the radar. No one really knew, I think internally how much I was struggling in the ways that I was. I didn't tell them they weren't really emotionally present or available Mm -hmm. to fully notice. So long story short, you know, but I think I, I didn't get official diagnoses or treatments and I didn't wear, you know, my symptoms as visible as some of us do. But my point of all of that is, most of us, at least the humans that I've worked with and observed, share similar stories. When I ask them, well, when did this start? Was there a moment in time? The answer I'll usually get is some version of as long as I can remember. It's been like this, which does is really, you know, um, alluring to, to that old model. Well, okay, if it's as long as you can remember, then how couldn't it be that we were born with something, especially if as long as you can remember is when you're infant or one or two or four or six and really, really young. But there's so many influences and factors that we are also experiencing at the same time when we are even that very young age outside of just the genetics that we're born with. But even if we want to travel down the genetic that we're born with conversation, we're born from two other humans, right? Mm. Who are carrying their whole story genetically in their behaviors, in their bodies, in their energy, 
So things are really are transmitted between generations, but I don't think, like I said, in the invariable way that we were ultimately taught. So even if, so I use myself as an example because my mother is chronically anxious on top of chronically ill. If you ask me, those two, in my opinion, are interrelated. She suffers from many physical chronic illnesses because of her relationships with her emotions, which is very avoidant, very distant. And I'm of the belief that emotions don't just go away. Even if you can get really good at not not feeling them or not being incapacitated by them, as I've gotten myself very good, doesn't mean that they're not taking a toll. And for some of us, that toll are physical symptoms. So long story short, so if you think about my story, my mom has all of the experience of anxiety down to the hormones in her body, down to the cortisol and the adrenaline that runs rampant in us when we are chronically stressed, as my mom was. So if you put my my little embryo in my mother, right, then chances are I too am being awash with that cortisol, right, and that adrenaline. So it gets really murky with then, is this the chip that she gave me inside my DNA or is this the environment that existed for me in my womb? So this is where it's really hard to say it's one and not the other. No, it's both, right? So her genes were impacted by her, you know, pre, from prenatal experience, postnatal, then it parted in me. Then I was born into my family environment where the, that was the environment that impacted whether or not things were switched on and switched off, being modeled anxiety, being modeled avoidant emotional behaviors, not having people help to support me when I was having big feelings, having a lot of big feelings, having two caretakers my mother and my older sister, my sister is 15 years older than me. So significantly generationally older being chronically ill. So I had a lot of big feelings. So before you know it, everything is interconnected. I'm the child who has anxiety from a very young age, making it appear in a lot of ways, right? That I was genetically predispositioned to that. But how can we say it wasn't everything else that I just described from my womb environment to my family environment to the behaviors that were modeled? It's just, it's too interconnected. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And we find like this yin and yang balance of, like you said, like the environment and the external and the internal. And it's like, how do you really allocate like, oh, it's, you know, 60% here, 40% there. It's really not something I think we can accurately do. Um, and I know that's something you talk a lot about too, is, especially when it comes to the subconscious, what we, you know, get raised in and brought up in, in our environments, you know, that plays a tremendous, tremendous role in our lives and what we're taught and what we're ingrained at such an early age. And can you kind of touch on that and how it pertains to growing to be a young adult and a adult later in life and how important that, that time in our lives uh, are? 100%. So the way I describe it, and this is really simplistic as a lot of my descriptions are, maybe even a little silly, but when we come to this planet, no, I, I don't care how you believe it is that we get here, upon arrival, I mean, we are really, in a lot of ways, open and absorbing all of the information, learning to be human. I mean, we're taking it all in. We don't even know how to, we don't know what our body is, how it works, let alone our feelings and how to be in the world and how to mm-hmm. think about ourselves and how to navigate relationships with others. And we are interpersonal creatures. So relationships and how to relate to others and interact is a very big part of our learning. So our, the way our brain, I talk about this often also to illustrate why those early years are so impactful. 
the way our brain develops because you know we're, we're animals in a lot of senses. So the way our mammalian brain has developed, it's not fully developed when we're first born. That's why we need, we're so dependent as we are outside of just able to care for ourselves, which we're not as infant humans, a lot of areas of emotional maturity and how to navigate the higher order ways that we as humans have been gifted to think that separates us from animals, right? The ability to think about thought and observe ourselves in the world. That's uniquely human, but that does not develop immediately. So we go through stages of development and from birth until about age seven or eight, depending on who you read, we are, our brain is in what is called a theta wave state, which is the same. So our brain has frequencies to really simplify it. And the subconscious area of our brain, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in one second, but that's, that's the vi- that's the wave frequency pattern of our subconscious <laughs> is theta wave. So we don't have consciousness now, the ability to think about thought and observe ourselves. That doesn't develop until post seven or eight. And the reason I bring that up is because without that filter of consciousness that we're dealing with, thankfully, as adults that we have and we're gifted with as adults, that's not there as children. So we, I call our, I call it, we're, we're in sponge mode because we're quite literally an open, unfiltered brain and we're taking it all in. And what we're learning back there, so just using, I think, the computer analogy that a lot of us use. So that's subconscious. I call it, it holds our programs. We, we program ourselves in ways to be human. And we need that. It's the, the primest example that I think a lot of us think about or live is driving the car, right? I'm driving my car. I'm going to and from work the same route I know. I've had a bad day at work. So all I'm thinking about on my whole way home is that bad day at work. I don't even remember my drive, but mm-hmm. I'm alive. I'm putting my key in the door, thankfully. That's, that's the prime example, right, of that program. We need that because logically thinking about it, like if we had to wake up every day, and consciously remind ourselves how to human from walking to talking to relating in the world to driving a car, we would have literal smoke coming out of our ears and be incapacitated. So I use that because we need these programs. But the things that we're taking in as children are about everything, are about our bodies, how our bodies work, messaging, ourselves, relationships, the world. And we're observing on multiple levels, all three of those areas. We're watching the people around us. So we're watching how people in our core family environment, maybe our friends, we're watching how they take care of themselves and their bodies, not all, you know, or, or how they think of the world. We're just watching, we're observing. And that's information for us. Without another point of reference, that's the way to do it for all we know at that time. Some of us, the next layer of messaging that we're given, some of us are given direct messages. We're told directly. What's what, again, very simplified, what's okay, what's not okay, whether or not it's in terms of our habits, whether or not if it's in terms of how we carry ourselves in the world, whether or not if it's in terms of how we relate to others or how we relationship in the world. Again, these, um, these factors or these influences, I should say, originate in our core family environment, which looks different for each of us. These messages, I should say, some of them extend to our society, our culture, if we're born in a religious sect, some of us, these are religion-based directives, right? This is appropriate. This is not appropriate. The third layer of messaging that we get is we are experiencing life. Even as a young child, we're experiencing ourselves in the world. We're experiencing mm-hmm. how we're doing or not doing in the world. We're experiencing ourselves, right? In relationships. 
So before we know it, we have come up with working models, with working programs, the things that consistently are the case for us in all of those areas. And then we continue to live them. Because of that power of the subconscious, we become the adult that maybe logically and consciously can look back and say, oh, okay, these habits, maybe some of them behavioral lifestyle habits, they're not always the best for me. Yet I still find myself living and having a hard time breaking those old habits. For a lot of us, the things we discover in adulthood is that our ways of relating in relationships aren't always the healthiest. They're the still older ways that we develop to relate in our earliest relationships that we're reliving in our adult ones, Mm -hmm. even if logically, again, they don't serve us. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's what always blows my mind about consciousness and how you kind of mentioned it's like this, you know, step-by-step phase. And then you hear it talked about now a lot in the, you know, self-healing community and different communities now and, and consciousness has kind of become a buzzword um, but it makes you really wonder too, is there ever like a, a limit to where your consciousness can get? Because at least like, you know, from my own perspective, I don't think there is, you know, I think it's like this ever ebb and flow that continues to go, you know, kind of has its peaks and valleys, but through each peak and valley, you learn something new. And that's what always is super interesting to me for children is because like you said, you're, they're stepping into this new world. And it's like, oh, it's a whole new world. And like you're taking in all this stimulus and it's like borderline overbearing, but they're able to still handle it. But their consciousness is directed in such a way that they're allowed to. And so as you develop and evolve, your consciousness starts to shift. And I know you talk a lot about that too. And how we, you know, as we get older, we start to almost become, you know, on autopilot. And that's, what's really interesting to me is because it's like, we almost lose grasp of consciousness. There's this point in time where it's like, okay, you've got all this like, uh, like flooding of consciousness in certain areas, you know, and then as you get past that threshold of seven, eight years old, you know, it starts directing itself in other ways. Right. And then as we become, you know, teenagers, young adults, adults, it really starts to shift. Um, so what do you think about that? And, and those kind of phases from childhood to going into like young adulthood, where do you see kind of people maybe like losing the grasp on the progressive consciousness that they've been building at such a young age, or even being aware of the decisions that they're making and not running on autopilot? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Lee. I think that, and I actually wrote a post about this, I think last week, within the last week, about how I would actually extend that into adulthood. We have moments, so we go in, I call it, we go in and out of consciousness, even in <laughs> even in adulthood in a lot of yeah. in a lot of moments. But to answer your question more simply, looking back, I think that there's developmental transitions. Transition, I think, is the word that I kind of landed upon when I heard you asking that. So we have developmental transitions that happen, you know, between significant school age periods. So before we're adolescents, which the age is getting younger and younger, our family core system is what's most important. So the consciousness is going to be really wrapped up in all of our patterns and all of our programs are going to be real. That's going to be the, the, the primary place that we're existing. Then we become adolescent. And because of the nature of development, again, like I said earlier, because we are evolutionarily interpersonal creatures, so we need to interpersonally relate peers become our number one priority. So then that's a transition stage that could shift our level of consciousness. Why? Because now our very sheltered in a lot of ways family system for some of us more so than others becomes expanded. Now we get introduced to the reality that 
other people are different and other people come from different home experiences. Other people show up differently in the world. When we're in that really contained family system, you know, some of us are way more contained than others. We don't have any points of reference. The way our family is, is the way all families are. Why would we imagine that's not the case? So when we're introduced to peers, I think that shifts our consciousness a bit where we are introduced to contrast in a sense, others being different. Um, and then obviously those developmental transitions then happen as we, as our hormones shift and peak in teenage years. And then we learn how to relate romantically. Um, and again, that could another shift in consciousness. Then flash forward, those of us who leave home, that's like another time that comes out to mind, whether it's in college or post-college. Right now I'm learning a new sense of self, me separate, me living physically independent in some ways. And again, I could just keep going on and on. Then maybe it's marriage and then maybe it's children and then maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's moving, mm-hmm. country, right? I mean, it really, like, so that's what I said. I think this expands into the future, indefinite future in a lot of ways, those moments where our, our um, consciousness awakens and, and goes to sleep and when it shifts and when we gain new levels of consciousness. And a prime example if you would have heard, I was talking about this this morning too with my partner. If you would have heard my my story of my life when I was in my twenties, you know, up until my thirties, even you probably would have heard a different story than the story I tell now about my past life and and my older relationships. Same relationships, new level of consciousness. So even as we evolve, and that's what I mean when I say we get new levels of awareness within our own stories, even past experiences that I once thought were one way now gain a new depth in a sense. Mm. I like that. Yeah. And that's very true because you look at those experiences in a whole, whole new perspective and you, you know, you, you start to be able to see how it kind of played a, you know, piece into where you are today. And it's not always negative. It's not always positive, but more of a, just an observation and being able to assess that for what it is. And I think that's a big piece. And, you know, like you mentioned with just healing in general is being able to look back and say, you know, this is where I'm at now. That's where I was totally different people, totally different, like conscious beings, but you have to, you know, respect that journey. And that's what the, <laughs> it's the interesting part to all of this. Um, and so, like you said, you know, as we're going through these different phases of life, as we're evolving, as our consciousness is shifting, um, we then throw something into our path called the workplace, which mm-hmm. is a whole nother, uh, it's almost like another reality to me, especially with how people act and treat things. Um, so that's really, I'm, I'm super excited to hear you kind of talk about that because I know you do, um, you speak a lot about the, your emotional state and how to manage that and, you know, getting in these new environments because Nicole, I'm sure you've seen it a bunch. It's like, you know, people get in these environments and it's almost like it's a new world to them. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to act or they act so differently than they, than they would outside of work. It it literally blows my mind. Um, so touch on a little bit of that. I know that's kind of broad, but if you can kind of just kind of tell the audience a little bit about, you know, how we can begin to, you know, continue taking that consciousness into the workplace, because that's a big thing the workplace warrior advocates is like, okay, we're in this new wave of consciousness now. We're ev- uh, evolving as people, but how do we get the workplace to continue evolving at the same speed? Yeah, absolutely. And a really, really great question, Lee. And I'm going to start with that last statement you made, which is when you said evolving as people, because my overwhelming statement is even in a workplace, which I do agree fosters different aspects, 
and triggers mm-hmm. different parts of us, we're people relating to other people, For relating sure. to ourself and our the- our stories. I call them narratives about ourselves. typically how worthy, unworthy, how productive, un- right? Million different stories. A lot is triggered in us in work in particular, but I go back to we're people, meaning being really conscious about those changes that we see in, you know, I am of the belief that healing begins within. So I do know, and a lot of the, when I used to do one-on-one sessions, a lot of the clients that I would see work would become part of the conversation because it was the people at work that were challenging my boundaries or the people at work that were triggering me or just my overall performance at work that I'm not feeling so positive about. So work was definitely a topic of regular conversation. But I'm of the belief that even though I do know, put it this way, and have witnessed and lived in some experience, in some ways, toxic work environments, right? Things outside of me that I cannot change. Because anything outside of me, as far as I say it, I cannot change. But so while I will never disagree that there are some work environments or colleagues or people at work that are unchangeable, universal truth, but really toxic, problematic, I'm of the belief that we need to work on changing ourselves and how we show up in that environment first and foremost, right? Because some of the time when we do that deeper work of healing, we can learn to tolerate some of these environments. Some Sometimes, beautifully, all of the issues seem to go away because I'm different and I'm navigating them differently and I don't view them maybe as the issues I used to view them. Not all of the time is that the case. So being really conscious, observing yourself at work. And if you are one of those people that's relating to this, I am different at work. These are the things that are problems for me at work, or this is the size of my personality. These are my challenges at work. I will always break down change lay with two really easy, simplified steps. And the first step is the word that you and I have been dancing around this entire time, consciousness. Until we see ourselves and our patterns, and you said something really astute earlier. You said about how, how we see, learning how to see ourselves. And the word I use is objectively. Or we, whether it's our past, whether it's our current, whether it's our future, being as objective as possible, an objective observer as possible. So the first step to create change is getting really conscious, observing those patterns, observing the ways that you're different at work or more challenged at work. That creates the opportunity for the second step, which is changing, starting to make new choices in some of the areas where you want to see change. And I highlight those two steps, Lee, because Step two, which is the step that most of us are interested in, because that's the step that relieves our discomfort. I want to change. I want things to be different. That can't be without step one. So anyone listening, really spend a week or two and observe yourself at work. Notice for yourself, what are those challenging situations? What is the side of you that comes out? What are the emotions that you feel more frequently at work maybe than anywhere else? What are the relationship challenges? Remembering that we're just humans relating to other humans, whether it's our peer at work human, a person doing the same job or our supervisor or the CEO, right? Notice yourself and what those patterns are. Often they're similar to how we relate in other relationships. Sometimes they're a little bit different because some of the aspects of ourself that are activated at work are the same ones that are activated at school. How good am I? How am I performing? Am I worth things, yeah. right? So that could feel a, that those those points of us or those deeper wounds could be slightly different than how we typically feel out with my best friend or even with my partner. But a lot of times, late, it's it's somewhat similar. I'm navigating my feelings at work 
probably in a somewhat similar way that I navigate those same feelings in my other relationships. But for listeners, the first step is notice yourself, watch yourself, observe those patterns, because then we get the opportunity to identify the ones that don't work for us, to identify the ways that I would prefer to be showing up for myself professionally in this environment. And then we have to make a consistent effort of showing up differently each and every day, each and every one of those moments, knowing that I'm not always going to, those old patterns are right around the corner, but then I have to actually work to create the change. And I highlight the second part because a lot of us, I think, get really frustrated, understandably, because a lot of what we want to change is an environment or a situation or a way of being that's making us uncomfortable. So we want the quickest way out of that discomfort, which is change. However, because this all wraps together back to the power of our subconscious and the pull that our brain has to keep us in the familiar, those older programs are, are weighty. They're heavy. They want to be chosen because they're, they're familiar, even though now logically from what you see and observe of yourself at work, you might notice that those patterns aren't serving your future that you would like to see for yourself. But we cannot change unless we show up trying to change. And I say that because I get a lot of understandably people who, you know, either in the way they ask the question or they're looking, I think, for a magic, a wand, an elixir, you know, a journal. I talk a lot about journaling. Nothing is magic. There's not something you can do, as far as I see it, at least one time, a day, a week, a month, and expect that older part of us to change. We have to learn and cultivate doing the new thing as consistently as possible to create change. Yeah, because to me, it's compounding, right? It's no different. Like then you can go back to like a gym analogy. You can go, like you said, you can go one week, a month, whatever. Um, but if you're not consistently showing up, then, you know, you're not building on top of anything because there's no stable foundation. And that's, that's how I love how you painted that picture a moment ago beautifully, because like from childhood to school to the workplace, it's those same kind of like behaviors and patterns and things that are ingrained in us. And, and momentum can go both ways. Momentum can go for the positive effect or negative, because to me, momentum's everything. Because once you get going in a direction, it's hard to kind of like hit those brakes and, and pull to a stop, whether you want to or not, right? If you're on a a positive momentum train and you're trying to, you know, keep going, you want it to keep, you know, go, go, go. And if, but if you're on that same trajectory, but with negativity, it's a lot harder to pause and stop. You're like, Oh shit. Like I really need to change some things. And I think that's where like I see in the workplace, it's almost like we're so far gone that, you know, you're either a, you've got your people that don't want to change or don't, don't see a need to change. So that's a problem within itself. Or either B, you go to the the first half of what you said is like the observation that the observation just necessarily isn't there. For me, it was like a blessing and a curse with obsessive compulsive. Like I was <laughs> the most obsessive aware uh-huh. dude possible, <laughs> but I had to learn to channel that. And so it's like I would obsess and be in the wrong areas, but how do I like focus that get that gift and turn it from a curse into a blessing? So it's um it's a weird balance. So what would you say for people that are either I guess let's start on one side of the coin that are aware they need to change, but they're not necessarily keen on like stopping and observing, or they may be observing everything or maybe not observing enough. What would you say is like a guidance? Cause like you said, people kind of want like a step one, step two, how can they start observing in the right ways? Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to talk about change too. Cause I think I heard that question somehow For sure. up in there, but, um, 
there is a too much observe. There's a too, there's, there's an end of each spectrum that, and I find that either end of the spectrum, not observing at all, too much observing can be equally problematic for different reasons. So the way, so, so we have to balance when, if you're someone like you or I endlessly caught in our minds, right? Our balance point comes more around living in the present moment. So cultivating that presence, that conscious awareness as to just being out of my mind. I believe, Lee, that most of us spend way too much time in our mind, period. I think that the school system cultivates that. I know the work is an extension of the school system, at least as I say at the workplace. And before we know it, we are primed and over-practiced in our thinking brain, our monkey mind, as a lot of us call it these days. So I, I believe that most of us sit on that end of the spectrum where trying to solve too much of life from our, from our mind, from our brain. So we need to find that balance point of noting maybe what's up there because sometimes what's up in our mind can be helpful. Sometimes not all the time. That's the next step is differentiating between when I'm having helpful thoughts and when I'm having unproductive, as I call Mm -hmm. them, unhelpful thoughts, that's another skill that it takes. That first happens with creating space where I am here, the authentic me that is behind the observer, the witnesser of my thoughts is separate from my thoughts. And for those of us like you and I, who have the obsessive thinking, at least I know for me, I I lived a life of, of being my thoughts for an incredible long amount of time. A thousand percent. Right. With no space. And I would even convince myself, as I think a lot of us do that, oh, well, that's important because my thoughts are me. They're my guidance. They're my intuition. That's how I'm getting through life. That's not true. We do have an intuition. It comes from a deeper place. It typically is not speaking to us like the thoughts that are speaking to us all day long. And that's another reality. Thoughts are speaking to us all day long. So if you're sitting on the other end of the, that you and I sat on, oh, I'm hyper aware of my thoughts. If you're on the other end, a lot of the time when I introduce the consciousness practice to people, they are shocked within the first couple of weeks of how much thoughts are happening all day long, mm. completely outside of their awareness. And I tell them, because that can be really uncomfortable. I can bring up a lot of feelings and then I'll often hear questions of, am I doing this right? I'm getting worse. No, no, you're not getting worse. That's what's always been there. You just have been so putting your attention, attentionly is the most powerful tool that we have. Mm. And the, the awareness that is us, the conscious being that resides behind our thoughts and our narratives, that's the operator of our attention. So I call it a muscle though, because a lot of us aren't used to directing where our attention goes. We're used to either the world is endlessly grabbing our attention, the external world that is, and we live in an increasingly distracting external world. Or if you're someone like you and me, our internal world is endlessly grabbing our attention. So the more we tone that muscle and tune into the fact that thoughts are there, learn how to separate ourselves. learn how to pick the productive ones or engage with the productive ones and then tone that muscle so that we can redirect our attention into the present moment where life is. And that's, I think, kind of addressing on either side. And then whatever side you're on, this is about change. Chances are you're gonna have to change some things. You're gonna have to start to build a new practice into your day or show up differently. The concept I'm always going on and on about is what I call a small daily promise because change, like I mentioned earlier, is universally difficult for each and every one of us humans because we all have a subconscious part of our mind that prefers us to stay within the familiar Mm because to our subconscious, the familiar is predictable, therefore safe. So it prefers we live in those ruts, in those ingrained patterns for the rest of our life. So even though it doesn't care about logic, it doesn't care that this new habit is going to help you to either 
be less in your mind and in your body or be a little more in your mind to see what the hell's going on up there. Does not care that logically that's going to help you in the long run. It will only register that as uncomfortable, unfamiliar, abort at all costs. So small daily promise is my way of really highlighting the way we create maintainable change. Because like I said earlier, these are not magic elixir tools. We cannot do them one and done and expect change. We need to develop consistency. So setting up what I know about humans is a too high expectation, especially if you're a human out there who relates to being a perfectionist or if you're a high achiever. And a lot of people I think that are listening to this and in the workplace are, can relate to that. Chances are you have a habit of setting an expectation way too high. And an unattainable expectation doing this new thing every day is already a high expectation, let alone if you decide you're going to do five new things every day. Yeah. So I always suggest, Lee, whatever area you want to do, whenever you come to consciousness, maybe it's building in a conscious practice, right? In the new membership I launched, our first month's goal is creating conscious moments in our day. And my suggestion of the first small daily promise to set for themselves, for my members, one conscious check-in, not 12. I mean, our goal is 12, 15, 20, live all day conscious, right? But I'm never going to say, go be conscious now in the world. No, that's not going to, it's going to be too high of an expectation. Yeah. So anyone listening, whatever change in any area you want to make in your life, set that promise so small, it's almost negligible. And then like you said, keep that promise to yourself, no matter what the day throws at you. And then you'll create that momentum that you beautifully word it. And then you'll start to see not overnight, over time, the benefits of that one small daily promise. And that's incredibly empowering and motivate it. And we'll keep the momentum going for you, even when it's hard, because it's going to be hard. Yeah. Because like you said too, because there's like these grooves in our mind. And if you, you know, for the people listening, if you picture almost like a, uh, a, you know, snow, a hill with snow and, and somebody has been sledding down that same slope over and over and over and over, or if you have a raindrop on your windshield and that one raindrop, kind of keeps following the trail of the other raindrops. Like that's our mind over the course of years and years and years and years and years and years. And so <clears throat> those thoughts have been going down those routes over and over and over and over. So it's not something like you can just, like you said, journal or um, just decide to be conscious one day. And then that whole groove just be, you know, becomes painted over because whether it's like meditation or plant-based medicines or mindfulness or breath work or whatever you're doing, there has to be pieces to that that slowly start to build in and 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 level that surface back out because it it takes time. It takes a lot of like conscious time and work, and it's like a, you know, it's a job within itself. So, what would you give some people out there that are kind of on that journey and they're you know on the cusp of this? What are some things that they can kind of take home with them and do? Um, and maybe they're in the wrong work environment or, you know, they've got some stuff going on, on, on at home. So I, I see that, you know, both sides of two, that's either the work environment that stimulates the person or it's the environment at home or, you know, or vice versa. So it's like, what would you say to people like that in either one of those situations where it's maybe their home stimulating them or it's the work environment or, or potentially both? What are some practices that I know we've mentioned today already, but what are some of the to-dos for some people to take home with at all levels, you know, in the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. And I think outside of my always recommendation, which is to just learn how to be a little more conscious, set a timer on your phone, check in with yourself. What am I thinking in the moment my timer goes off? What's going on around me? Where's my attention? Mm -hmm. How do I feel? Right. That can be an incredible foundation to give us the opportunity, like I said earlier, to then make new choice points. 
It also could be really helpful to have a good, honest talk with ourselves, with no one else, not our friends, and ask what they think I should do or not do. Ask ourselves what what needs to happen differently, whether it's in my home environment or my work environment, to create change in my life. And I strongly urge when you're asking yourself that question, you really try to reflect upon a me-based answer, meaning not my partner comes home different in a different mood, not my boss suddenly morphs into being, you know, kind and uh, points out my, my positive qualities, right? That's not, that's not the exploration that I'm suggesting. It's how do I need to navigate my partner who might still come home in a mood? How do I navigate my boss who chances are is going to show up as the same critical condescending person that they've always been tomorrow, right? So having that really honest conversation aimed at personal responsibility. While, like I said, some of these environments are toxic. Maybe the hard conversation and this exploration takes you to a conclusion that might be uncomfortable of, I need to leave this environment, whatever it might be, right? And obviously, we can't maybe leave overnight. I mean, I know for me, I was I had to keep my old practice going. I had to financially pay the bills. There was no, oh, this doesn't work for me anymore. I got to go. Um, I had to create those systems in place that eventually I could find my way out of it. So yeah, my yeah. number one suggestion, and like I said, beyond consciousness, is to really have a, and this might not be a one-time event. I might not just sit down, have a think, and come to this conclusion, but cultivating that way of thinking about ourselves in the world. Yes, maybe, and yes, these other people and participants in our world are playing a part. A, a partner that comes home in a mood, I was this partner. I colored my entire experience in my relationship for many months and years negatively because of the energy that I brought home from work. So yes, that's real. If you're on the other side of my partnership, if you're my partner, right, I understand the toll that was that she experienced mm-hmm. because of how I arrived. I'm not trying to diminish toxic environments or negative environments in any way. However, I know the way out of that, you know, was changing, was me changing. And the way out of it for my partner was her changing the way she navigated me until my change set in that I didn't come home miserable anymore, but she couldn't will that away. So she had to learn the ways to navigate my negative mood, just like I'm suggesting when we have this self-exploration, really focusing on me. What can I do different in any area that I'm struggling? What do I need to shift or change? How can I show up? How can I navigate this stress in a way that works more for me without necessarily, as a lot of us do, look, well, I need them to change. Because chances are they're not going to change, at least yeah. not overnight. <laughs> For sure. And that's, you know, we can't put those same expectations. Even somebody that's on a, a path to getting better, you know, then they start feeling like, oh, everybody needs to be on that same path. You know, it's all an individual um, inner battle that we're playing, right? It's not like a sport. There's nobody to compete against uh, other than yourself. And that's what I like to tell people. So, man, as somebody that was uh, called question mark, in my early childhood, I've got so many more questions for you that could probably last hours, but in sake of time, I will, uh, I would digress. And I hope to, uh, have you on as a part two, because I think we could really dive into the mindset in the workplace and really help some of these, you know, business owners, executives, even employees really dial in and how to advance not only their personal sales, but their career, because, you know, I think they go very hand in hand. It's not two separate things. Like if you're working, whether it's your own business or someone else's, like that's a part of your life. So I think you should take pride in that no different than you are doing the shadow work and everything else. So 
Um, Nicole, if you could share with everybody where they could find you and the best places and you put some great content out. So I want you know listeners to be able to go and follow you and check out some of your work. Yeah, I appreciate that, Lee. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's the thing. And what I was indicating earlier is the mindsets that are, we're stuck in and in, in, in our personal life and other areas of our life typically are following us into our work. And they really do limit how successful we are, how productive we are. And furthermore, more importantly, how we feel about the work that we're doing. So I would be more than happy to, to dive a bit further into that. But my main hub that I'm always shouting out is the Instagram because I'm there every day at the.holistic.psychologist. Um, I'm always putting content out there and you can watch me live in the journey right alongside of you. Um, through there, you can also gain access. I have an email list with some free journal prompts that go out when you sign up. Everything is in a link tree uh, at that Instagram, the.holistic.psychologist. The YouTubers that might be listening, I have a YouTube channel, also The Holistic Psychologist. Um, every Sunday, I put out a nice short practical YouTube video as well. But the Instagram is really, if you want to find me, anything that's going on in my world, I will be talking about it through the Instagram in one way. So thank you so, so much. Yeah. And thank you so much for being here. And you all heard it best from Miss Dr. Nicole. And she's got some amazing, amazing stuff on her Instagram. And, and just the way she puts things is so easy to digest and understand and put into perspective. So be sure to check that out and give it a follow and, you know, take part in some of those practices, you know, day by day and start building that foundation. So thank you all for joining. And this has been another episode of the Workplace Warrior.